Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored the podcast for filthy-minded readers. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, a historian obsessed with smut. I presume you are too, if you're listening to me measuring the rudeness of banned books. Now, there are lots of ways to support the show. You can just listen, or you can listen and tell someone else to tune in. You can also join me on Patreon, like Owen Kinsella and Mary Mackin. Thanks a lot, lads. It really helps. And you can also buy merch from censor.ie. Tell the world you love evil literature with some fancy stickers. Anything at all, it all helps. This episode features a book you probably haven't heard of, Helena by Vicky Baum from 1928. Vicky Baum was a book a year kind of author whose commercial success means people don't take her very seriously. She certainly didn't, describing herself as a first-rate, second-rate writer. In the 1920s and 30s, she was a best-selling author. Her books even became Hollywood films. She was pretty huge. Baum started her career in Germany, writing in German, obviously, but by 1938, she had moved to America and begun to write in English. Helena was her first commercial success and was translated into English in 1930, the same year the first Irish censorship board was founded. Her work featured strong female characters whose complicated romantic lives dramatise some feminist and gender issues of the day. She also gives a great insight into Weimar Germany for anyone interested in a society that gave birth to the Nazis. Naturally, from 1935 onwards, the Nazis banned her work. She was everything they hated, a Jewish, liberal, educated, working woman whose novels were wildly popular. By 1940, the novel Helena was banned in all countries under Nazi occupation, regardless of the language it was published in. In Ireland, we got there first, yay, and banned it in 1938. It says a lot about Irish censorship that my first question is, how come it wasn't banned sooner? Feckin' hell though, I don't know what to say when your country's censorship regime seems to be more severe than the bloody Nazis. I think I'll need that drink to go with the book now. But unfortunately, there was none this time. There's a lot of stinky, dirty chemicals on clothing and hands, and that's really the most powerful sensory impression. 
Since it's set in Germany, though, you can imagine they're drinking coffee or lager or schnapps, depending on the time of day. Food-wise, Helena is tempted by, quote, a great copper full of steaming sausages, unquote, in the train station. Nothing says Germany quite like a sausage in a train station. Sorry, that's a terrible double entendre. I'm going to need a schnapps after that. So grab whatever you're having and prepare yourself for some German smut. Why then was Helena banned? And why was it only banned in 1938 when it was available in English from 1930? I'm afraid the real reason Helena was banned was because Baum's great international smash hit, Grand Hotel, was banned in 1931. After Grand Hotel, the censors banned every Baum book they could. I've counted seven banned Baum books on the list so far, and I'm sure there are more. As she wrote a novel a year, it took some time to ban both her old and new material. The board had a backlog of filth to ban in the 30s. I'll just do a quick digression here and tell you a bit about Grand Hotel, because it's fabulous. To be honest, it's a much better read than Helena. The sex in Grand Hotel isn't explicit, but its atmosphere of louche anonymity undermines faith and fatherland ideals pretty comprehensively. Set in a Berlin hotel, the cast of characters includes a glamorous criminal and a beautiful young secretary who takes side jobs as a nude model and mistress. Baum caught the spirit of Weimar Berlin, where people embraced speed and change over conservative family values. There are both fast cars and fast women in the novel. And that's the zeitgeist explanation. But in literary terms, it's well-written, gently ironic, sensitive and compelling. In other words, it was both socially relevant and fun to read. It was read in its thousands. In 1931, it was on the top 10 list of American bestsellers. So while the Irish couldn't legally buy it, it was a literary sensation in the US. Baum was invited to California to write a screenplay based on this novel. The film, Grand Hotel, starring Greta Garbo, was released in 1932. So this book, and Baum herself, was unavoidable in 1931. By banning Grand Hotel, the censors were making a statement about popular culture. When they continued to ban nearly every other book Baum wrote in the 30s and 40s, they were showing how much they feared literary popular culture, especially that written by and for women. If you do want to sample Vicky Baum's work, read Grand Hotel. Some of you might read Helena for academic reasons, but anyone can enjoy Grand Hotel. So I'm speculating that the censors never read Baum's books after Grand Hotel. But I can only guess. So let's read Helena as if its banning wasn't part of a consistent targeting of the author. After all, I am supposed to treat the censors' decisions as if each one was a separate, independent judgment. If they had read Helena, what would have upset them? The novel is very much in the spirit of a conventional romance with our heroine Helena Villefort orphaned and alone as a young university student. She's struggling, striving to be independent, even though she has no money or family support. Helena is a chemistry student, at a time when very few women attend university at all. Thus, getting her degree is her professional obstacle. The personal obstacle is that she's deeply attracted to one of her professors, the charismatic but married 
Ambrosius, but neither of them want to admit it. I thought her name choice for the male hero was really very funny. Made me think of Ambrosia, the food or drink of the gods. Very silly. Now, the first moment I thought was bannable is page 57 to 59, when Professor Ambrosius argues with his wife, who has declared she doesn't want to sleep with him ever again. He's bewildered, declaring that as they are married, she belongs to him. But she repudiates his entirely conventional vision of marriage. On page 58, she says this. You haven't done anything to me and I haven't done anything to you. We simply do not suit one another. The human body has its own laws and no willpower can overcome them. I did not know that before. Now I know it. Well, that's a very daring feminist statement. Here is a married woman openly refusing to have sex with her husband and clearly stating her physical desires, or lack of them in this case. This is revolutionary stuff for the patriarchy. And Ireland was extremely patriarchal. Republicanism might have been a political ideal, but that philosophy of equality couldn't be enacted in the bedroom. Then on page 59, Ambrosius, after he's turned down by his wife, is tormented by passion and lust. Oh, he was a beaten man, this Professor Ambrosius, this indefatigable research worker, this world-renowned scholar. His spirit had forsaken him and his body ruled ignominiously. Feminine limbs danced across the pages of his book. A stream of alluring figures floated round the walls. Uplifted arms, outstretched legs, throats thrown back in enticement, submission. The man groaned. His feelings shook him. He was like a large tree shaken to its roots by a storm. He pressed his fists against his eyes. Yvonne was there, there inside his eyelids. Yvonne was throbbing in his blood. She was dancing in his brain. Oh, it was going badly with him. You know, I kind of like this. It's a bit overwrought, but it's fun. Probably too sexy for the censors, especially since Ambrosius doesn't consider moral or religious ideals at all. And there's no idea of shame or guilt. He's simply experiencing physical and emotional torment. However, Helena is really the main character. Ambrosius is only a sideshow in the novel. Her love stories are at the real heart of it. She forms a romantic attachment with a guy called Fritz Rayner, but not a very enthusiastic one. She feels more maternal towards him, to be honest. Their sex scene, such as it is, is on page 88, where Fritz is declaring his love. You must belong to me. I am telling you this now quite seriously and calmly. I was drunk with you before, but now I am calm. You must belong to me. And you can't deal in half measures anymore either. You must give yourself completely, Hela, if you love me or not at all. Must I? thought Helena Villefort. She went on rowing and rowing, and so imparted a rhythm to her circling, whirling thoughts. Must I really? Yes, I suppose so. Probably it must be. I am free, yes, I am, and I have no one to account to but myself. But am I ready? Yikes! I hope this was not a typical declaration of love in the 1920s. The men in this novel are all about owning the women. So fucking gross. Helena isn't that into him, as you can tell, but like so many of us, she kind of goes along with it. 
And the chapter ends with the couple returning late to Helena's boarding house. Grasmuka's widow lay awake waiting for her young lady. Very late she heard the steps, the lock, the door. She heard the stairs creak secretively and then all was quiet. And then she heard, crossing the crooked deal boards, the bare feet of two people. There it is. There's the sex. Imagined and implied. This is definitely more romance than smut, isn't it? But it's after this that the novel gets much more interesting. Helena goes swimming in the river. Helena goes swimming in the river. And this is from page 96. So directly after she shagged your man Fritz. At about noon, Fräulein Wilfuhr appeared at the swimming bath in the river, which was fairly empty at that time. She fetched a bath towel and bathing costume and withdrew into a cabin. Inside it was twilight and there was a smell of water and tarred wood. On the wall shivered the reflection of the ripples flowing beneath the boards. Fräulein Vilfour undressed and stood naked for a minute. She looked down at her body, which seemed to have become uncanny and which caused a strange fear to envelop her for certain reasons. She put her hands on her body, just where a lightly curving line defined the small of her waist. It isn't possible, she thought again. That was the one thought which hammered in her head, day and night, hour after hour. All right, so she's pregnant on page 96. This book is nearly 300 pages, so there's a long way to go. What will happen next? Will there be a lucky miscarriage? A reluctant marriage? What soap opera drama awaits us? I'll admit I was surprised when the chapter continues with her trying to induce a miscarriage by throwing herself belly first into the river. This is the description of the aftermath of the attempted miscarriage on page 97. Fräulein Vilfour waded with palpitating heart back to her cabin and pulled the wet bathing suit from her body. She listened to herself. Deep down inside, after all those exertions and shocks, there were pains now, very faint drawing pains in the stomach, pains that were rather surmised than actually felt. Help me, dear Lord. It really is not possible, she thought. She left the bath and returned to the laboratory. I'm sure a lot of people found this shocking in 1928 or 1930. The dread of a mistimed pregnancy, the desperation, the examination of Helena's inner life. It feels very daring. Baum was part of a discussion at the time around a feminist ideal called the New Woman. In Germany of the 1920s, a new woman wore her hair short, had a job and was independent. You won't be surprised to hear that this new woman was blamed for the decay of society overall, because that's how it goes. Typical woman bringing down society by existing. Unfortunately for Helena, the vigorous diving didn't work. So she turns to a homemade remedy from a chemist friend. The stink of cinnamon and bitter almonds alerts her landlady who is smart enough to work out the problem. At this point in a romance novel, I would expect drama, tears, confrontation and moralistic judgment. Instead, what we get is this. I would advise the young lady to go to a proper doctor. They can give you advice for everything, said the Grasmuka and looked at Helena. Helena gave her a hunted glance, looked away and then looked back again. The Grasmuka kept her eyes fixed upon her with a wonderful womanly understanding. Do you mean Frau Grasmuka 
faltered Helena with relief. She let herself go now, simply let herself go. Yes, I know of cases. Only last month one of them helped our milkwoman, the thin one who always brings the milk. She entrusted herself to a doctor. The milkwoman, was she ill? She was in trouble, said the grass mucca significantly. I can find out the address, she said, without expression and without looking up. Fräulein Vilfour dumbly closed the door behind her. Yes, please do, she said outside, breathing deeply in the darkness of the crooked stairs. Right, that was unexpected. The landlady doesn't throw her out for being a fallen woman. She offers Helena entry into a sisterly network of knowledge. Baum is stepping out of the romance genre, where this plot would usually be about Helena and her boyfriend, and she's turning to social realism. Like millions of women, Helena doesn't tell her lover. Instead, she gathers her meagre money together and sets out to find an abortionist. This search for an abortion is quite extraordinarily tense. I really wasn't expecting a thriller buried in a romance, but that's what Baum gives us. The first guy she sees, the creepy, quack local abortionist, sexually assaults her, and she flees. When she hears of a sympathetic doctor in a nearby city, she travels to his clinic. All the time she's talking about money, how little she has, how she can't really afford to eat, and how she must spend money on this procedure. It's really emotional. The second doctor is clean, reputable and normal, but asks her for a thousand marks. This represents a year of food, rent and lecture fees, so she can't afford it. On her third attempt, she meets Frau Dr. Gropius, who is an interesting mix of practical sympathy and moral condemnation. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On page 131, Dr. Gropius says this. You poor thing. You poor thing, said the doctor and laid her strong hands with their short nails over Helena's fingers, which trembled under the pressure. 
It is always the same cry, every day the same cry. With you it is from this cause and with others from another. I cannot help. I dare not help. I have to send wretched women away who have had five, six, seven children and are distracted from misery. I, if only I could have my way. Among the welfare regulations, there would long ago have been one by which the blessing of children might be regulated officially. But we're a long way from that yet. And we have our ominous laws. You are studying. I too have studied. Yes, I know only too well how difficult it is. Do you really expect me to run the risk of imprisonment? To stake my whole existence? I can't do it. I cannot and I dare not. And I can only warn you with all my might against entrusting yourself to quacks. I see far too much misery of that sort every day. Obviously, the censors reading this would have been appalled. Abortion information is one of the most important things that they censor. And Helena's search is pretty much a guide to the backstreet abortion industry. Her last attempt is with Fräulein Friedrichs, a midwife. She agrees to help, but the house is seedy and crummy and scary. And this is from page 135. The worst part of this room were its walls. They let everything through. Odours, the smell of humanity, voices. And also something uncanny, something frightening and gruesome. They let through a gentle moaning. There was no doubt about it. Somewhere behind doors, someone was moaning gently, complaining quietly, so patiently, so obediently, without crying out, without strength. Behind walls, someone was being tormented, martyred. Fuck it, she used the word martyred? I mean, what a loaded choice. Martyrs are tormented because they are holy, virtuous and innocent. As a type, the martyr is usually the opposite against the fallen woman that Helena and the other pregnant woman represent. I mean, there's no patron saint for people needing an abortion. Well, actually, the Catholic Church did make a woman a saint for refusing an abortion, even though she knew she would die as a result. So that's the sort of thing we're talking about. But here, the martyr is the woman suffering a dangerous, unsafe abortion. Fuck it, for the conservative Catholics on the censorship board, this was an incendiary narrative. In the end, Helena doesn't undergo the slight operation recommended because the doctor is called and the illegal abortion racket is shut down. So the anonymous moaning woman saves Helena from potential death. The narrative then abruptly turns to romance, with a hint of melodrama, because there's a suicide pact, an arrest and a criminal trial. When I say it all like that, it sounds pretty silly. But if you've stuck with the book this far, you cannot help but be charmed by Baum's style. She makes this ridiculous plot deeply believable because the characters are quite well drawn. You like Helena too much to scoff and throw the book away. While in prison for apparently murdering her boyfriend, which she didn't do, but you can read all of that if you're really interested, Helena becomes reconciled to her pregnancy. And this is page 187. And then one night, something else happened. One night, while she was still awake but on the borders of dreamland, and her thoughts were turning into fantastic chemical formulas, she felt within her body the slightest, tiniest movement. It lasted only a second. It was only as though an unimaginably small hand had stroked her from within, as though something sleeping deep down within her had rearranged itself and then gone on with its dreaming. She lay and spread her hands over her body. 
She sighed heavily once, then she breathed softly evenly and waited, wondering what that inward something would do now. And then it came again, the tenderest movement, the gentlest caress that is given to a woman to experience. You? whispered Helena, shaken and unbelieving. Is it you? She smiled in the darkness, and suddenly her eyes, those eyes that never wept, filled with hot, blessed tears. It's a bit old-fashioned, cheesy, and quite conservative in its visualization of this great reconciliation. But taking a reader on the journey from desperate search for a termination to joyous revelation of pregnancy is not easy. Abortion is a subject that polarizes people, authors as much as anyone. So Baum's portrayal of how ambivalent a person can be about pregnancy is still pretty amazing. Helena isn't just a cliché character Baum created to debate the moral and social issue of abortion. She's complicated and contradictory. I think Baum writes better interior character studies than plot, to be honest. Anyway, long story short, she gets out of prison and returns to her studies. Now, there's huge spoilers here because I'm going to give away the entire rest of the book. If you do really want to read it, press pause and come back later. Helena finishes her degree, has her baby, and manages to care for him while unmarried. This isn't portrayed as an easy option at all, but through hard work and personal determination, she succeeds. By the end of the book, she is triumphant. She has created a rejuvenation drug. Yeah, I mean, the actual elixir of youth. And a powerful chemical manufacturer wants to buy it. In a gripping boardroom meeting, she negotiates like a pro and gets everything she wants from a room full of men. This is the ultimate feminist wish fulfillment. In the car afterwards, this is what she repeats to herself. The car left the industrial neighbourhood and jolted over a long, long bridge into the town. It jolted a refrain that Helena had always known. Done. Done. Done it. Done it. Done it. Dr. Helena Vilfour clasped her newly gloved hands together and thrust out her chin. And sitting alone in the motor car, she suddenly let forth a long, suppressed cry from the depth of her heart. A single, high cry of triumph. The harsh and strong cry with which a young falcon soars into the air. At this point in the text, she's no longer Fräulein Helena Vilfour, but Frau Dr. Vilfour a name change that reflects a huge leap in her social status. But how does a single woman, Fräulein in German, acquire Frau without being married? Funnily enough, that was explained earlier when she was trying to secure an abortion. Frau Dr. Grobius told her that she was entitled to call herself Frau even though she was unmarried. So single mothers could use Frau even when unmarried. This concealed their single status while giving them the gravity of Frau. Just fascinating. I have no idea how realistic this is, but it was in the most obviously documentary, realistic part of the novel. Love to know more about it. So while a strong woman overcoming all the obstacles to finally win is a classic feel-good story, the romance element isn't tied up till practically the last page. In a completely unlikely twist, Helena and Ambrosius meet up in sunny Italy. He has been partially blinded by a failed suicide attempt. They finally declare their feelings and all is well with the world. I thought this had strong Jane Eyre vibes. Wealthy younger woman returns to older man only after he's been blinded and is dependent on her. Very Charlotte Bronte. 
The ending did attract criticism, and I think it's justified. The romance aspects of the novel seem like a pretty packaging to attract the consumer. Once you're hooked on the romance, you would be drawn into a more serious, possibly feminist narrative. It's pretty obvious why the Irish censors hated Baum. She was that fatal combination of popular and politely provocative. In banning a book like this, you could say the Irish censors were working in the spirit of the age as well. But that particular spirit of the 30s is one nobody wants to be associated with, the Nazis. Studying history in college, I was assured by the white male historians that the rise of the reactionary right wing in Europe had no real parallel in Ireland. I know what they mean. The Irish state was not run by pagan, warmongering, racist, genocidal maniacs at this time. But then there's the anti-jazz stuff, extreme censorship of publications and film, and laws against dance halls. It feels like they were downplaying the extent of ultra-nationalist authoritarianism in 1930s Ireland. Even if Baum hadn't been Jewish, the Nazis would have hated this book for the same reason the Irish censors did. A strong female character with choices around sex and reproduction that isn't punished in the story? Definitely bannable. The Nazis also hated the publishing company that Baum worked for. This was Ulstein, whose publications were not sympathetic to the Nazi cause. And the publicity that Ulstein created around Vicky Baum tied her personally to the new woman phenomenon. Ulstein drew parallels between the author and the themes in Helena. So the social realism was emphasised over the romance. A jacket blurb even included a reader saying how the book reflected her life as a young student. In this context, it is easy to read Helena as an explicit contribution to the social debate around feminism and gender. It could also be read as a commentary on the treatment of unmarried mothers in the German welfare system. On page 75, a medical student describes the humiliations experienced by single mothers who received free care but only if they consented to be teaching cases. This meant that they would be examined by up to 25 male trainees at a time and give birth in front of at least 12 of them. This is portrayed as cruel and dehumanising and humiliating. Helena herself works desperately hard before the birth so she can have the choices that money buys in maternity care. Not everyone has seen Baum's work as significant, In the 1960s, German academics classed her work as trivial literature. I'm not sure that was ever fair. In the original German, the title of the novel is Studchem Helena Wilfur. Studchem stands for Studentin Chemie, chemistry student. This puts her public face, her educational status to the fore. And it almost reads like a business card, where the degree or academic credentials are part of your name. Maybe the English translation does it a disservice. Helena conveys nothing of that formal identity. In Danish and Norwegian translations, the original title was preserved. So why did the English choose just a first name? Odd. It seems to me that in 1928, when women were not often university students, describing a female character by educational status could have been a powerful statement. Or maybe it was just an advertising gimmick. This is an incredibly commercial product. So in genre terms, this novel is hard to categorise. Is it a political social realist text or a light-hearted romance? 
I'm not sure Baum stitches her genres together perfectly, but her characters are interesting enough to bring you along. And now it's time to set discussions of literary merit aside and get to the real point of the podcast. Censorship bingo. Just how rude was Helena? First square in the card is breasts. Yes, there are boobs, but not very frequently. At the very beginning, when Professor Ambrosius is falling out with his wife, Yvonne, her bare-breastedness is seen as evidence of a deeply flawed character. So yeah, we got to tick that one. Even if it isn't sexy, it counts. Bestiality? Definitely not. Sex work? I don't think so. No. Racism? I'm afraid so. The N-word appears freely when an incidental character is a man of colour. Drugs? It's hard to decide on this one. There are no mind-altering substances, but there's lethal medicine, quack abortifacients, and a youth serum. I think it's safe to tick this one. There's a lot about drugs, even if nobody's high. Politics. I would say not explicitly, but it was banned for political reasons by the Nazis who objected to the Jewishness of its author. Swearing. No, all the language is very proper. Infidelity. Yes, the professor's wife is cheating on him. Crime. Oh, there's a lot of crime in this. There's suicide, attempted suicide, illegal abortion, procuring drugs, all sorts. We can tick that one. Genitalia. No, not at all. Abortion. Well, yes, a whole chapter devoted to it. Quite an extensive chapter. Orgies. No, no way. It's far too romantic for that sort of thing. Sexual assault. Yes, the quack abortionist that Helena first tries does assault her, and that's kind of gross. And it's described as haunting her forever as well. Extramarital pregnancy. Absolutely, the whole plot revolves around extramarital pregnancy. Masturbation. No, not at all. Sex toys. Also, nothing like that. Feminism. Certainly the new woman debate is part and parcel not only of the subject matter of the book, but the promotion of the author in Germany at the time. So, big tick to that one. Divorce. Yes, Professor Ambrosius is eventually divorced from his horrible wife Yvonne. Contraception. No, not at all, not a word. Menstruation. No, that's not there at all. Blasphemy. No, there's not a word about religion or God, which the Irish censors might consider is inherently blasphemous. But no, we can't really tick this one. Oral sex. No. Graphic violence. Uh, no, not at all. And finally, queer content. Not a sausage, I'm afraid. It's all heterosexual. In the end, it works out that Helena gets 10 out of 25. I'm a bit gobsmacked by this. When I started to read it, I would have gone for a five or a six. Even if I was being really strict and left out drugs, it would still be nine out of 25. It's astonishing. The tone and style is neither rude nor smutty, and there's like no sex in it at all. In no way does it feel like the plot is transgressive. The matter-of-fact, open way Baum deals with the social topics diffuses their smutty potential. And yet, Helena scored pretty highly. I'm beginning to think the censors were right to be afraid of books like this. Read for pleasure by women, maybe they did have dangerous ideas. So to wrap up, would I recommend it? Not wholeheartedly, to be honest. Read Grand Hotel instead. That has some unforgettable moments in it. Next time, I'll be reading the podcast's first celebrity sex memoir, a tell-all expose by Earl Flynn. He had the bare-faced cheek to call it 
My Wicked Wicked Ways. Sounds feckin' amazing. I adored him as Robin Hood in the 1938 film, but will I still like him after reading his memoir? I'm sure he was a dog, but how rude can a memoir from 1959 really be? Till the next time, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.